Hello, fellow friends, family, degenerates, and MMA fans, and welcome to another edition of Caged Wisdom MMA. My name is Josh, and I am your host. On the introduction podcast, I mentioned that I would be breaking down how do I view fights, how do I make predictions on fights, what is my my quote-unquote process. I'm going to do this in two steps, two different podcasts, because I don't want to go over that 15 minutes that I mentioned last time. So I think it's important that I, I hold myself to that standard, and I said that I was going to do it, so I want to do it for you. So the first part is going to be MMA betting rules. Overarching, what are the the rules that I follow before I even watch film? I, I jot down notes against my my 11 rules. That heavily influences how I view the the, the fights as I'm reviewing footage, which I'll, I'll call my MMA fight breakdown thoughts. You know, how am I assessing performances over time? How am I looking at, at footage? What are the things that I'm typically looking for? So I've got an 11 MMA betting rules that I have, and these have been very helpful for me. So number one is to ignore fighter hype. This is a, a massive amateur betting trap, whether you're doing it just because you want to predict fights or you're doing it because you actually want to make some money on it. But people tend to remember what they saw last. And unlike football, for example, where you have 18, 17, 18 weeks of, of you know, sample size as to what their tendencies are, what they're doing. It's, it's easy to remember three weeks ago. It's easy to remember two weeks ago. It's easy to re- remember one week ago. In MMA, we don't have that luxury. Oftentimes, most fighters are fighting, what, four times a year if they're active and healthy. We also have outlying situations like John Jones that hasn't fought in, what, two and a half years, you know, whatever that, that time frame is. And so it's always easy to remember whatever fighter has the most hype behind them. But you really have to go back and do due diligence and look at the overarching body of work. Are they progressing? Did they just have a really good stylistic matchup on their last performance? Is the hype warranted at this point? So those are the things I like to look at. Number two is age matters. So north of 35, I feel, obviously there's outliers to this, but it begins to affect fighters, uh, primarily their cardio, speed, and their chin. At 38, oftentimes, especially gatekeeper level and below, we start to see the will to win begin to fade. I know that's something I've experienced in doing jujitsu. You know, I'm not going to be going to uh, uh, Abu Dhabi by any stretch of the imagination. I probably wouldn't have been able to if I started when I was eight. But there's some people that are really, really good, and they're using this as a way to, or, or they're they're training like they are going to compete on a regular basis. They're going to compete at a high level, and I'm doing it for what they call joy jitsu. Yeah, I'll compete every now and then, but it's a different feel to it. Love competition, but I'm not 24 looking to make a name for myself. I'm 43 years old, and I'm looking to uh, just enjoy jiu-jitsu, enjoy the community, enjoy the, the fitness aspect of it, so different mindset. Obviously, when you're talking about professional-level MMA, they're not doing it as a uh, as a way to stay in shape. They're not doing it because it's, it's joyful. They're doing it to make money and because they want to be the best, but if they're not close to being at the top of the, of the, of the, the, the heap, at 37, 38 years old, that's a problem because they're probably not going to get there realistically, you know, especially, you know, with the, the, the new up and comers that have been doing MMA since they were five or six versus 10 years ago, where a lot of people are coming in from collegiate wrestling backgrounds or jujitsu, or they were K1 strikers and they're looking to get into the, uh, get into MMA then. Number three, 
is to heavily factor in a regional skill set that has not been solved yet. 20, 25 years ago, Brazilians, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Took a while to figure that one out. 10, 15 years ago, collegiate wrestling or wrestling in general. A lot of them from the United States. Maybe that's not to say they were the best, but you know, Russia wasn't, maybe the UFC hadn't rush, uh, hadn't expanded into Russia as much yet because Russians are always just amazing wrestlers. Same with the Middle East, uh, Caucasus region. And so what is it now? Now it's fighters that are coming out of Dagestan, Chechnya, Kazakhstan. And basically the way that I see it is these are cultures that have, you know, very masculine, macho cultures. They, they take a lot of pride in their fighting. Kids fight from an early age in their own sport, like Sambo or, or, or whatever it is, wrestling. But now because of the expansion of the UFC, we're starting to see top-tier talent emerge because it makes sense financially. So we're seeing countries push out their best product, and their best product is darn good. And it is going to take a while, I believe, you know, whether it's five years, which, I mean, it's, one could argue it's already been five years, but we're really seeing the influx now after Khabib. We're seeing... Uh, Chimev, uh, we're seeing Islam Makachev. I mean, there's, there's Umar Nurmagomedov. I mean, there's this one at Saeed Nurmagomedov, one after the other. Uh, Magomed Ankalov or Ankalov, I don't want to say it right now. But so when I look at a fight and I see they're from that region and that skill set hasn't been figured out yet, have to fi- you have to respect that and you have to you have to focus on that. Number five is the fighter that dictates where the fight can take place always has a big advantage whether they're the ones that have great takedowns or on the, on the flip side of that, they're, they're a striker that has great takedown defense. You know, it's kind of one or the other. But I think that's important because whoever gets to, to determine where the fight goes or stays is at a massive, massive advantage. Number six, for the shiny new up-and-comer prospect, we'll say, the veteran gatekeeper is always the biggest threat. Why? Number one is the ability to deal with the pressure of the moment. We've all seen it before. Some some guy that's got a lot of hype coming in, young, meets a, a veteran gatekeeper like, let's say, Matt Brown. I'm not referencing his last fight, but someone like Matt Brown that's been there, done that, and doesn't get the nerves. With the up-and-comer, they got a lot of hype. They believe the hype oftentimes, and they know that if they don't put on a good performance – not only do they have to answer to the fans, to the UFC, but they also have to answer to themselves. You see a lot of young fighters lose a fight and then maybe lose one or two after that because their confidence is shaking. Uh, I'm trying to think a, a great example of that is um, uh, Kevin Holland, right? You saw the difference in attitude. He was having fun, almost playful. Lost, came back, super serious, tried to turn around, lost. Had that weird situation where he he butted heads with the other guy and got knocked out, that got overturned. And then in his last fight against uh, the Brazilian, uh, I forget the guy's name, the cowboy guy, you know, he didn't look that great in the first round. And then he had that mental adjustment going into round two after he somewhat like yelled at himself after the first round, and then he switched it back on. Is that a physical thing? Is that a training thing? No, that's a mental aspect. And it's because he believed in himself. He was calling out Israel Adesanya. 
you know, planning for the future as someone that was going to be undefeated. And then next thing you know, loss, loss, no contest, and then loses the first round and then turns it around. So we'll see how he does after that. But that's a perfect example of what can happen when they fight a gatekeeper or a higher level opponent and then they lose. Number seven is completely obvious. This one is style make fights. The fighters today are all Olympic level athletes. That's a given. They're all extremely talented. They're well-rounded. They're proven. There's no, there's no mistakes besides maybe like CM Punk that are in the UFC or have gotten into the UFC in the last 10 years. So what is that difference? Obviously, there's some you know, champion-level fighters that can separate themselves. But a lot of it comes down to style. So any fighter can lose on any given day. And it's really going to be dictated by the style matchup of the fight. Number eight, if an older fighter over the age of 35, as I mentioned before, loses to a younger fighter and they rematch, always, always, always take the younger fighter. Is it 100%? Of course it's not 100%. You look at Moreno Figueredo. But overarching, I bet you, and I, don't, I haven't done the numbers because that's a lot of work and I don't have it all in a spreadsheet. But I bet if you were to go back and look at fighters that, that go into a, a second fight or even a trilogy, maybe they went one and one, I would bet a vast majority of the time the younger fighter wins that, that second or third matchup. Number nine, if you're on the fence about a fight and you can't make a confident choice, do one of two things. Number one, either don't bet it, don't pick it, or number two, wait until the introductions. Look for the serious, the calm, focused fighter. Uh, if they are screaming, yelling, you know where they, they sit in front of uh, uh, Bruce Buffer when he's doing the intros and they try to time it so they scream when he says their name, but for some reason they get it wrong like every single time. I don't know why. They need to break down their own footage on that. But what what I see there is most of the time, especially when you're getting into the top seven, top eight, the very focused, calm fighter are the ones that come out and perform better. The ones that are looking to scream, yell, build themselves up, bang their head into the cage, etc. typically are doing that to either try to invoke some kind of fear in their opponent, which at that level, I mean, come on, how often would that work? I mean, maybe. Uh, number Or number two, they're nervous, and that's how they're getting their own energy out. And that's how they're building themselves out. That's how they're getting confident. You'll see them rush out, you know, right when they, you know, say the fight's on. And they run to the middle of the ring, and they try and get those first three or four shots in so they can settle into a groove. But when you're trying to build yourself up at that moment, obviously there's a lot going on, especially if it's a big fight, you're on a main card, etc. Then... You know that that could be a, that could be a problem because they're not doing it to challenge. You know they're not doing it for no reason. They're doing it because they're either nervous or trying to intimidate. But usually it's it's probably pretty pretty nervous. Great example would be when Marvin Vittori fought Israel Adesanya. Go back and watch that introduction. Israel was literally looking at him, saying, "No, you're not going to beat me." Calm, stoic, prepared, confident. And what was Marvin Vittori doing? Pacing back and forth, staring him down. At one point, he even rammed his head into the cage, which when I saw that, I was like, okay, you know, I already thought it was going to be uh, Israel was going to win that fight. 
But that was very, very telling. And so I told my buddies that were with me at the time, I go, go heavy on Izzy. The other guy's nervous and doesn't have the confidence I like to see of a fighter going into a championship-level fight. Number 10 is training partners. Where do they train? When you're picking a fighter, are they at a top-notch school? Do they have the best coaches in the world? Do they have the best training partners in the world? We are in a day and age where there are mega, mega schools that, that attract and retain the best talent, both from a coaching perspective and from a fighter perspective. If they are not at one of those schools, whether it be ATT, AKA, uh, Elevation Fight Team, I know there's a ton, and obviously there's a bunch international internationally that I, I don't know off the top of my head. But if they're not there, then are they getting the best looks? Probably not. When you have fighters that are coming out, you know, they, they do an introduction, they're coming out like North Dakota or Missouri or whatever it is. I'm not saying there's not great fight camps out there or great schools. But when you're going to fight the best of the best of the best, then you have to train and you have to be coached by the best of the best of the best. So I think that's extremely important. And number 11, the final one, is I rarely ever take a fighter that's coming in on short notice. Are there exceptions? For sure. But short notice means several things. It means there's a limited game plan. It means that they're probably not in the midst of a camp. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. So what does their cardio look like? When you see those types of fights happen, one thing I notice a lot is the person that that was brought in on short notice tries to get the fight finished as soon as possible because they know intuitively, they you know, they're professionals, that if they don't go out there and finish in round one, or halfway through the second round, they're probably going to fade. There's a lot of tough fights that come out like that, especially, you know, you saw Sean O'Malley take on that, I forget the guy's name, but he was a regional guy. <laughs> and he came and he put it on Sean for a while. You know, he didn't win, but they can also be dangerous fights. But, you know, if we're looking at, at, at a odds or a percentage standpoint of when you get brought in on late notice, what does that do to your overall record? I think it would be foolish to say that it helps it. And I think it absolutely hurts it. And it's not just based on stylistic matchup or skill set or, you know, who's just a better fighter. But a lot of it comes down to, you know, cardio and game plan and mental preparation. So those are my 11 MMA betting rules. Hopefully you enjoyed that. The next podcast, I'll break down when I'm, when I'm reviewing footage on, on old fights to make predictions. What are the things I look for? Again, I hope that you enjoyed the content of this podcast. If you have any feelings that uh, on different direction that you'd like to, to hear about it, by all means, I think maybe wait until we get a little bit further on into the, uh, you know, the actual fight breakdown and the car breakdowns. Uh, but again, thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this. I hope you got a lot out of it. And this is Josh, your host with Caged Wisdom MMA. Have a great day.